You ready? Yeah. Episode 15. I feel 15. like we just recorded episode 10. Now here we are. Here Half we are. Episode 20. Welcome into the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I am Brett. And we are excited that you are here to join us. This is episode 15. Give us some skin on the low for reaching episode number 15, uh, whatever that means. But um, we're gr- glad that you're listening. Uh, may- maybe you're listening on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you rate us, give us a review, and give us five stars because otherwise... Brett's going to call you a hater, and there's nothing I can do to stop him. Yeah, and we don't want reviews just for review's sake. Reviews help uh, other people find this this podcast on whatever uh, pod uh, format you are listening listening to us on. Uh, So it's for a reason. So if you you don't want to share on your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or whatever, uh, you can help us out by giving a review. That, That does help us. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely does. And also, if you don't feel like you can give us five stars in good conscience because there's something that you have a problem with, maybe something we said, something you want to address to us, send us an email, doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us about it. Give us a chance to interact with you, maybe to address it on the air. Uh, before you leave us a review. And if you still feel that uh, we don't deserve the five stars, uh, I mean, I'm inclined to agree with what Brett's going to say, but we'll uh, we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, one reminder that we want to put out there is that last episode we said uh, one or two sentence questions about questions that you have about the Bible. Uh, make sure you send those in. We record these in in batches, so uh, we you know we haven't had time for you to send anything in. Uh, we did take a little bit of a break though and got us some tacos. Before we did. This we did. We recorded one. We ate at the lovely establishment called Bar Taco. Want to give them a shout out? Yep. I don't know if that's they deserve uh, it. Yeah, they they were really great. Uh, there's a they're they're a chain. I know there's one here uh, in Chapel Hill where actually neither of us live now, but. Uh, there's another one in Raleigh, so there's a couple in the Triangle, and they're they're all over the country. I don't, I'm really feel like I'm plugging this restaurant now, but uh, and they, probably should. But they're our first sponsor because they fueled us. <laughs> they did. They fueled us. They, for they gave this us some episode. Yeah, that's true. Those Baja fish tacos are just keeping me going, man. Yeah. Well, before they run out, how about we get going? All right. Yeah. Let's let's do it. Um, are you you're gonna flip this week? Yep. And I'm gonna call. And my call is going to be tails. All right, tails is the call. Here's the flip. It actually did flip, and it's heads. Oh, it's heads. head. It's so head. Uh, since I have won, I will defer this week. Oh, okay. Changing it up again. Changing it up. All right. Well, so I want to circle back today and begin to talk about some of the traditions that I've referenced in previous episodes. But before I do this... I think it's important to note something, and that is, while I have and likely will continue to call into question several common church practices, please be aware 
that I am not questioning the validity or the importance of the ecclesia as a community. Instead, I'm asking you to thoughtfully consider our church traditions and really think about how well these practices square with Scripture and the practices of the New Testament church. Because, you see, many churchgoers and church leaders prefer to hold to tradition, even if it's not grounded in Scripture. So my aim is for you to consider the source of these practices and to seriously pray about how you should respond. Now, I'm going to begin with something that we've touched on but haven't really gone into a lot of detail about, and that is the church building. And to kick this off, I just want to share with you this little nugget from Philip Schaff, who was an American church historian and theologian in the 19th century. Commenting on the church building, he wrote, quote, The notion that the Christians in the apostolic age erected special houses of worship is out of the question. As the Savior of the world was born in a stable and ascended to heaven from a mountain, so his apostles and their successors down to the third century preached in the streets, the markets, on mountains, in ships, sepulchers, eaves, and deserts, and in the homes of their converts. But how many thousands of costly churches and chapels have since been built and are constantly being built in all parts of the world to the so-called honor of a crucified Redeemer who in the days of his humiliation had no place of his own to rest his head. Now, why is it that contemporary Christians have such an affinity for brick and mortar? Why is it that if a group of Christians begin to meet together, their thoughts almost immediately begin moving towards how to secure a building? The building is so connected with the idea of church that we unconsciously equate the two. You can hear it today in the vocabulary of the average churchgoer and the average pastor. I know you've heard it. You hear someone say, ooh, look at that church, or hey, where do you go to church? Or, thank you for visiting our church this Sunday. However, may I say very candidly, none of these thoughts have anything to do with New Testament Christianity. Rather, they reflect the thinking of other religions, specifically of Judaism and of paganism. Ancient Judaism was centered on three things, the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifice. When Jesus came, he fulfilled all three. He is the perfect and finished sacrifice. He is the great high priest who established a new priesthood, and he is the temple which was destroyed and raised up again in three days. Christ is the fulfillment and the reality of it all. Now, these three elements were also present in Greco-Roman paganism. The worshipers of the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods and goddesses built massive temples— and they too had priests who offered sacrifices. Only the early Christians did away with all three of these elements. In fact, Christianity was the first non-temple-based religion ever to emerge in the world. And nowhere in the New Testament do you find the word church in the Greek ekklesia or kuriakon, the Lord's. Never in the New Testament does it refer to a building. To the ears of a first-century Christian, asking somebody, where do you go to church, would make as much sense as asking them, what color is 3 p.m., or what shape is blue? 
Just like time and shape has no color, a person cannot go to something that they are. You do not go to church. You are the church. You see? The first recorded use of the word ecclesia to refer to a Christian meeting place was penned by Clement of Alexandria in about 190 A.D., Clement was also the first to use the phrase, go to church, which would have been a foreign concept to a New Testament believer. Even so, Clement's reference to going to church is not a reference to attending a special building for worship. It instead refers to a private home that the second century Christians used for their meetings. Christians did not begin to erect special buildings for worship until the Constantinian era in the fourth century. Now, while the Emperor Constantine is often lauded for granting Christians freedom of worship and expanding their privileges, his story actually fills a dark page in the history of Christianity, and church buildings began with him. The story is actually quite astonishing. A major turning point in history came in 312 AD during the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. It was this battle that helped propel Constantine into capturing control over the Western Roman Empire and ultimately to becoming emperor of all Rome. See, Constantine was a pagan, and the main god that he worshipped was Apollo, the Roman god of the sun. Well, according to Eusebius, the story goes that prior to the battle for the Milvian Bridge, Constantine looked up toward the sun and he saw the sign of a cross. When he asked a priest of Apollo what it meant, he was told, in hoc sino, Vinces, which means in this sign, you will conquer. Constantine took it as an instruction from the gods and ordered his generals and all his soldiers to put the symbol of the cross on their shields and battle flags. And the result of the battle was a decisive victory for Constantine's army. Thus, he felt obligated to pay his respects to the Christian God, the one represented by the cross. So Constantine legalized Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. But his own conversion to Christianity was one about which legitimate questions can be raised. Because for one, Constantine viewed the Christian God as a means to power, wealth, and success. And for another, Jesus only became one among the many gods which Constantine worshipped. The main one still remained Apollo, the god of the sun. After all, Apollo was the one who showed him the symbol of the cross in his mind. Nevertheless, Constantine sought to legitimize Christianity not only by legalizing it, but also by building massive temples to the Christian god in the same fashion and with the same features as the temples of the many pagan gods of Rome. The design of these temples, which for the sake of time I won't go into all the details of, was basically a copy of the pagan temples of the day, and that made a lasting effect on Christian worship service. Because like the pagan temple, the church building was a place designed for passive and docile crowds to watch a performance. It was not a place where each member of the body has a role in ministering to others. The temples were named after saints in the same way that pagan temples were named after pagan gods. And in the centuries after Constantine, Christianity was made the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. 
But this was a move that had nothing to do with spirituality or the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it had everything to do with consolidating military and political power. As a result, church leadership offices, the, the offices of priests and elders and deacons, began to be filled by government officials who were not truly born again. They were simply there for money and political power and so forth. And the church building began to be expanded, and the architecture evolved in, to incorporate more and more elements from pagan worship. In the 16th century, the Reformers inherited the building tradition that had been passed down to them. And because most of the Reformers were former priests, they were unwittingly conditioned by the thought patterns of medieval Catholicism. Therefore, they made some renovations to the church building, but little functional change was made in the architecture. Even if the Reformers wanted to make radical changes to church practice, the masses were just not ready for it. They had been conditioned for centuries to expect a church building complete with a steeple and pulpit and pews and balcony and so on. Even contemporary Christians are unaware of the origin of this tradition, and thus they are unaware of the negative effect that this tradition has on true biblical Christianity. Now, it's clear in examining the New Testament that biblical Christianity does not include a church building, but was exclusively groups of individuals meeting in private homes. Still, some of you are probably thinking, okay, so what's the problem? So the church now builds a building for its meetings. What's the harm? And that's a valid question. To answer it, I only ask you to consider a couple of things. Number one is the incredibly high cost. The church edifice demands a massive infusion of money. According to Barna Research Group, the cost of building and maintaining church buildings today is over $230 billion, with a B, dollars per year. And the amount of debt that churches take on for these buildings is astronomical. The average amount paid for mortgages or rent for churches in the United States is about $11 billion annually. That averages to about $31,000 per church per year, and that is just in the United States. And by the way, that's also just for the building. That doesn't even include electricity, water, air conditioning, Wi-Fi, a coffee bar, and all the other luxuries. Beloved, this is a massive overhead. Imagine the difference that the church could make in the world if instead of spending all that money on a building, the church returned to meeting in private homes and shifted that $230 billion per year into services like ministry, mission, outreach, to feeding and clothing the orphan, the widow, and the poor. What if instead of building massive mega churches, we built massive mega homeless shelters? Second, consider the makeup of the church building, the one that has its roots in pagan worship. Don't underestimate the basic reality of humanity that every building and space that we encounter elicits an emotional response from us. You see, the social setting of a church's meeting place is a good index of that church's understanding of God's purpose for his body. 
A church's location teaches us how to meet. It teaches us what is important and what is not important. Go into any given church building and ask yourself some questions regarding the architecture. What objects are higher and which ones are lower? What is at the front and what is at the back? How might it be possible to adjust the direction of the meeting on the spur of the moment? How easy or hard would it be for a church member to speak where he's seated and have everybody be able to see and hear him? Does coming into this building make it easier or harder for you to separate worship from your everyday life? Now, ask those same questions about your living room. You see, my friend, the disjunction between worship service and daily life characterizes Western Christianity. Not so with the New Testament church. And the New Testament idea of a church meeting is for every member to participate in ministering spiritually to one another. Church buildings, as we know them today, greatly hinder both of these processes. Okay, there's one line of questioning that I would like to get to, but I think either you or I will take it on more specifically more specifically at uh, a different time, and that is about home churches and meeting inside the house. So uh, we can work that out another time, whether you want to do a thesis on that or whether I can. Uh, this is something that I'm really interested in right now, actually. Um, but let's go. I have two main areas of questioning. The first one is about the buildings. Uh, I mean, that's the main thing, right? I think uh, someone who would push back against you would name three things uh, about a church building. Number one is they would uh, note the convenience factor of having a church building for for a church uh, to meet together where a church is not going to be able to meet all together at the same time in someone's house. Uh, they would say that a building provides an ability to minister to those outside of the church in a way that a house would not. It's a gathering place for not only the church, but also they can use it for other good things, right? Uh, for example, I know some churches use uh, their buildings for food pantries and things of the sort, right? So they would say the ability to minister outweighs the cost. And then uh, just the church building itself uh, is an identity marker. It provides someone with a place that they feel like they belong. Uh, so pick one of those, maybe all three, and respond to someone that would push back against you with those. I think I'm going to kind of address all three and, and try to go in the order in which you, you bring them up. Um, the first one is convenience, that it's it's convenient to have this place that we go to and it's, uh, you know, it's already set up for us to, to meet there. And yes, it is convenient. And um, this is kind of something that I touched on towards the end uh, of, of my statements there that I didn't really go uh, a lot in depth to. But the building, uh, it is convenient, but that also makes it convenient for us to separate going to church from our everyday life, from, from to, to, to dis make a distinction between worship and how we live our lives day to day. And in the New Testament, they were a community that worshiped Jesus and followed Jesus every day. 
with their lives. It wasn't a building that we go to for one hour a week and, you know, meet together, sing some songs, somebody preaches a sermon, and the rest of us sit there and listen, and then we all go on our merry way. Um, that is a convenient way to do things, but that is not a New Testament way to do things. The, the early church did not function that way. And the idea that, um, you know, it's, it's just convenient to have a place for everybody to go uh, to be able to, to minister uh, or to, to be able to worship, well, it also means that you're only going to that place to sit there and listen to someone else speak. The New Testament church, uh, and I think we talked about this in a previous episode, every member was ministering to one another. You can't go into a contemporary church and sit in the pew and in the middle of the sermon get up and say, hey, I have a word from God. But that's how it was in, the, in, the, in New Testament Christianity. Uh, I mean, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, what is our conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, everyone be ready with a psalm or a teaching or a revelation or ready to use his gift of tongues or give an interpretation. Let everything be done for edification. Uh, that's the complete Jewish Bible translation, but other translations say it pretty similar ways. And it's it's pretty clear every single member of the church had something to do, and it wasn't to just sit there and listen to some other guy talk for 45 minutes. Um, it was everybody had a function. Everybody was ministering to each other. And this was being done more than just one hour a week. So the convenience factor... I agree, it is convenient, but that does not make it uh, biblical. That does not make it a model of the New Testament church. Um, the effect of um, it being able to minister to other, you know, you brought up the point that churches use their buildings as, as food pantries or, um, you know, provide shelter. And that's true, and that's, that's all very good. But if you look at, uh, and I, th- I think I said something like this too, if you look at the cost that they're they're doing it uh, compared to the amount of time that they're using it as a food pantry, like usually usually it's like you know maybe a couple hours a week, maybe a couple hours a month, it, less than that even. Some some churches do it like once a quarter. Um, so it's it just seems like a very inefficient way of outreach to spend billions of dollars on a building that you're having you know a couple of hours a week at the most in most churches where you're ministering to to the people. If you want to have the building to be able to minister to people, have the building and do it 24-7. Like that should be a homeless shelter, and a soup kitchen, a, a food pantry that people can go to whenever they have a need instead of having to structure their week around going and getting a meal here. Um, and, you know, I think that that would be a more efficient, uh, more efficient way uh, of, of doing things. And then clarify for me again what the identity marker was. Uh, having a church building to go to gives uh, someone uh, – it, it's a marker of the identity uh, that they have associated with that church. I get to go to this church, and whenever they get to, if they're talking to someone, they get to point at that and say, "This is where we, this is where we go to church." Uh, it's more, uh, perhaps, palatable to those on the outside, uh, and more clear to those that are outside, um, 
outside the Christian belief, it, it's easier to understand. Okay, I, I get that. And, uh, you know, there are certain people who do have that as their identity marker. They, they find their identity in the building that they go to and they say, you know, that's my church. This is my church is the one with the big steeple or whatever it is. But um, again, when you look at the New Testament, and we talk a lot about uh, the word church in the New Testament being the word ekklesia. Well, the, the other Greek word that's used uh, that gets translated as church is kyriakon, which means the Lord's those who belong to the Lord, uh, servants of the Lord. And, um, you know, Paul's letters and, and um, just the New Testament in general, uh, the Gospels also make it clear that we are to find our identity in Christ. We are to find our identity in following after Him. And getting that conflated with, uh, you know, I belong to this building over here, it it should be, you know, in terms of I identify with Christ and therefore I identify with his people. Um, that's something different entirely. But when it gets tied to the building as the identity marker, um, I think that there's something off there and there, there's something non-biblical and, and um, distorted about that. Yeah, and I had another question that I wanted to get to, but uh, I'm going to bypass on that. And I just want to add two things. Uh, the first thing is, if you want to look uh, at more study about, or if you, not really more study, uh, if you want to explore this further and get uh, some other people's opinions on this, a good person to look at is Francis Chan. He's a pastor out in California who uh, has been a part of a large uh, contemporary evangelical church before and has changed to now more of a house church model. Um, just listening to his thoughts on things is very interesting, so I'd like to put that out there. And then uh, the second thing is, is this is this is my addition. Um, I think I don't think Colin or I, and maybe correct me if I'm speaking for you, Colin, but I don't think Colin or I would necessarily say everyone go sell your building right now, and uh, we ought to be doing it completely different. Right, there is a context in which we live in right now uh, that has to be taken into account. I think Colin and is saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm saying mostly that um, we this is just a call for us to think about what the buildings actually are, not to get rid of them, but to uh, maybe make some gradual changes uh, as we go along. Uh, anything you want to add to that? Um, yeah, no, I think that that's, that's accurate. Like, it's implausible that every church sell their building and begin to just do a home church. It's like uh, I kind of talked about a little bit the reformers in the 16th century. Um, a lot of them did want to, like, tear down that brick-and-mortar thing, but the masses just were not ready for it. And it, the makeup of, of the contemporary church is that you know, you you can get a lot of people probably to to leave a traditional contemporary church model and to do something more along the lines of a home church, like Francis Chan has done. Uh, Frank Viola is another one, uh, a Christian leader who's who's embraced that model as being more in line with the New Testament. Um, but it's it's still going to be massive amounts of people who want to hold on to those 
those traditions. And I'm not I'm not trying to throw, you know, those people's salvation into question or any, you know, their their theology or anything like that. It's just that that is what they have grown up with. That's what they're used to. Um, that's what they're comfortable with. And, um, you know, th- this is really just a call to kind of think about those things. And like I said in the beginning, to um, to to see how well they square or don't square with the Bible and to just pray uh, fervently for how how we should respond. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, w- any idea about where you're going to go next week? Uh, I'm going to continue down this path of um, talking about church traditions and how well they're in line with the Bible. And I'm going to uh, talk about one that I think is, you know, going to ruffle a few feathers if we've left any unruffled from today. But uh, I'm going to talk about the evangelical definitions of tithing. I'm going to talk about what tithing is uh, in Scripture and what the church teaches tithing as today and kind of compare the two and and see how they line up. All right. That sounds great. Uh, Today, I am going to explore this idea of salvation. And uh, to start off, I I just want to share a little bit about uh, my salvation journey. Uh, I really, I break it up into two different parts. The first part is uh, whenever I was seven years old, I was at uh, my family's church and and there was a production of a play called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. This was a uh, popular play that was put on by churches in the 1990s. Uh, so some of you may know what I'm talking about um, whenever I say that, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. But uh, I was seven years old uh, whenever this this uh, play was done at our church. And uh, essentially, it just scared the bejesus out of me, um, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and I didn't want to go to hell. And so I decided I'm going to uh, put my trust in Jesus. Uh, and I don't think I really understood who Jesus was. Um, but I had this moment where I point at it and say, that's the moment that I got saved. That's my, that's my point of salvation. And I think it wasn't until college, really, that I started to understand that perhaps that was not the moment in which uh, salvation occurred for me. And that really, for me, there wasn't a specific time. There wasn't one moment in which uh, I saw Jesus for who he was, turned everything around, and put him as Lord of my life. Uh, It was more gradual. And uh, my campus minister explained it to me one time um, like this. He was talking about NASCAR and how uh, on the windshield, you know, they don't have windshield wipers uh, on the cars in NASCAR. Uh, They have um, different layers of plastic. And so if it gets dirty, you rip it off. Well, for a lot of us, understanding who Jesus is and, and, and putting him as Lord over our life is kind of like ripping off one sheet after another until the picture becomes clear and clear and clear, until you get to the point where you're like, this is what I know and this is what I understand. Uh, and, and then I have placed this trust in Jesus as my Lord. Um, and there's not that specific moment that you can look at. 
And uh, that can be difficult for some people. A lot of people expect for a salvation moment to happen. People expect for their heart to be beating really hard, uh, for the altar call to happen, uh, and for them to just pour out all this emotion uh, and for everything to change instantaneously. I think uh, a lot of that comes from uh, baptism shaping our view of salvation. Uh I personally believe in a believer's baptism, uh, and so sometimes we can – that believer's bapti- baptism happens after someone professes Christ, right? Uh, but in order to get to that moment, a lot of people think that you have to have that have that salvation moment leading up to the baptism, um, whereas some people who do not, not necessarily believe in a believer's baptism – uh, maybe uh, will baptize infants or something of the like. Uh, I don't think I don't think they have this uh, moment of clarity, this moment, this aha moment. Um, whenever it comes to salvation, and I think baptism, how we think about baptism, plays into that a little bit. I also think that uh, American history plays into it. We find ourselves in a specific culture that's been shaped over time, especially one that's been shaped by Christianity a lot. And so uh, we are the receivers of a history here in this in this country uh, associated with different great awakenings uh, in which there are people going around preaching, uh, people having those aha moments and receiving salvation and getting baptized. Um, so we have those. We also have, you know, you know, we have in the mid 20th century, whenever the Billy Graham Crusades are widespread. I mean, that was a that was a pop event. Everyone knew about those the altar calls and thousands upon thousands of people professing Christ in, in that moment. And I think that's really shaped how we understand the salvation moment in our lives. And so I think that can get in a way, get in the way for a lot of people that they expect for this aha moment to happen. Uh, if they don't have this aha moment, if they don't have this one time that they can point to, they don't think that they've been saved. They're waiting for that to happen, even though they may have all of the all of the groundwork done. They know who Jesus is. They know uh, what he's done, and they understand the need for him to be Lord over all, but they, they haven't had that moment, that heart beating in the chest moment that happens for a lot of people. And then there's also those people that had that moment, that had the clear, this was a defining time for me, and whenever they go forth from that moment, we should expect to see, they should expect to see changes in their life. But some people think that because that moment happened, they should then be uh, pretty much perfect for the rest of their lives. And so looking back at that, they think that that might have been fake. And that goes into a whole discussion about what sanctification is um, and uh, the continual shaping of us towards Christ's likeness. And if that's if that's you and you think that, Perhaps that moment of salvation for you was not real. Um, I want you to reconsider that because you are a continual work and no one's going to be perfect until that point. So this is really for for us to think about uh, our moments uh, of salvation if we had it or 
really for us to think about if we didn't have that moment. Uh, how d- how was God shaping our lives up to the point where we finally realized that Jesus was Lord and realized the difficult. Uh, Realize the advantages of both ways of coming to know Jesus and realize perhaps the disadvantages as well. And remember that we're always looking for forward to Jesus coming again to make us all like him. Okay. Um, so I, I just have a couple of questions um, in regards to this. So first of all, um, you talk somewhere in here about um you talk about this aha moment, this this moment of uh, epiphany where a person, you know, realizes what they believe. They realize who Jesus is. They realize that he died for their sins and um, they accept him into their hearts uh, and they, that's their, their aha moment. Um, but you talk in here about some people who think, well, maybe their aha moment was fake. Um, and they, you know, are, are sort of questioning if they, they really are saved. Um, and I, I actually want to uh, share a, a story that I recently uh, read in a, in a book I'm reading. Um, the author shares his sort of aha moment, and he, he kind of talks along these same lines. But um, his salvation moment was uh, he was seven years old, and... Um, he was just really curious about what the inside of the baptismal looked like. And he figured the only way he was ever going to get to find out is if he got baptized. And so, I mean, he, he got baptized when he was seven. And, um, you know, he, he, he said in there that he did, you know, he, he did talk with the, the minister and he, he, you know, did sincerely want to know Jesus and, and want to know more about him. But, he did have this interior motive of he, he kind of just wanted to see the in, inside of the baptismal. Um, so in a, in a case like that, um, what is some maybe reassurance that you could offer to a person who is questioning, well, maybe my aha moment wasn't, wasn't real because it was some, it was, you know, ha- had some kind of ulterior motive to it. Well, one is we have to remember that everything that we do is tainted by sin. And so uh, I don't think that any of us uh, ever approach the, th- the throne of Jesus literally or figuratively uh, in, in this moment, um, whether it's uh, we make that decision and know it or if we just look back and we're like, yeah, it, this has been brewing for a long time. Um, n- none of us approach that moment uh, free from any kind of other influence, Right everything that that we do is tainted by sin, uh, even this. Um, and yet there's still grace for that. Uh, Jesus gives grace for that. Okay? So that that's the first thing. The second thing is is um, if you there's a good it's a good sign that you if you are thinking about this, and this is something that is uh, causing you concern that uh, that that it was real for you. Because uh, the if it wasn't real for you, you probably wouldn't have that concern right now. Um, so that that's uh, an encouragement as well. And then I think my final encouragement would be um, that there is continued um, 
there's continued grace for you every day. Um, and and Colin and I were were discussing this over tacos earlier. He brought he brought up a good point about uh, following Jesus is a is a daily is a daily choice. Tell them tell them the reference, Brett. Tell them what I said it was like. It was uh, like Batman or like Bruce Wayne. Uh, deciding to be Batman every night, right? He has to. Yeah, and as Christians, we have to decide to follow Jesus every day, right? There's that. There's that one moment or a buildup, uh, if you want to call a moment an extended period of time. But uh, we we make a choice every day, and um, so if you're not feeling like you're following Jesus this day, you wake up the next day, you make a choice again. Um, continually, so that that's another encouragement that I have. I'm I'm glad that you brought up that reference because that's uh, I think a good place to close on, and I I kind of want to uh, take us down there a little bit further, and then um, try and prompt you uh, for maybe just another final exhortation. But um, yo, that Batman analogy is real. All right, like Bruce Wayne, he is a multi gazillionaire. He could do anything that he wants with his life. And he chooses, and it's you know it's it's tainted by what's what his upbringing was, what was brought up in his life. He chooses each and every night to spend his spare time putting on a cape and cowl and going around Gotham City to uh, to, to fight evil, to put an end to the villains, to uh, you know, and he he obviously also has to train to do that. So any spare time that this man has, he could literally do anything he wants in the world with, and he chooses to do it to fight evil. In the same way, we choose each and every day to follow Christ, to pray, to read our Bibles, to fellowship with other believers, to go to church. Um, you know, th- that is our identity. Uh, it should be our identity if we are the Lord's um, the Lord's people, and, um, you know, it's not easy. Batman gets beat up. Batman gets cut. Batman, you know, he doesn't have any superpowers. He's vulnerable. He can get stabbed and he can bleed, and he still has to make that choice every day to continue to do that. And so for the person who they're not questioning their aha moment, they're not questioning their salvation, they're just in the nitty-gritty, the day-to-day, everyday life. They're on the streets of Gotham, so to speak. They are following Christ, and it's getting hard. There's, you know, there's some temptations. The girl at work is wearing a short dress or... The, uh, you know, the, the kid in school is offering them the snort of cocaine or whatever it is, and they are having to choose every day to uh, resist temptation and to follow, follow the Lord. What encouragement do you have for that person? The encouragement is if, if you fail, there's grace for that. Um, and uh, we don't keep sinning so that grace may abound even more. <laughs> Paul says that, right? Uh, we still make the choice every day to uh, try to um, progress in our sanctification, meaning being more like Christ every day. But uh, whenever we fail, there's more than sufficient grace for that. And um, so make the choice every day to follow Jesus. If you fail, it's okay. Try it again the next day. Uh, one final thing that I want to add before uh, we 
start closing up shop, uh, maybe I can hit the magic word here. Um, is if you are having um, if you are having trouble uh, working through this, if you think that uh, you have to continually uh, ask Jesus to save you and save you and save you again, I would like to uh, put out a book there by uh, out there uh, by a pastor named J.D. Greer. It's a book called "Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart." Uh, he's not talking about uh, everyone just stop asking Jesus for salvation. No, it's about uh, it's about assurance of salvation. Uh, so that's a that's another resource that you have there. My good friend JD, I haven't seen him in a while. Um, <laughs> We've seen him a total of one time at the Bible Museum, and Colin calls out and goes, "Yo, JD." <laughs> And then he feels obligated to come talk to us. He was very right. hospitable, he, though, very nice. He thought he knew me. He turned around like, hey, what's up, man? Like, yeah, came he, over to talk to us. He probably figured you went to his church or yeah, something. Yeah, I'm sure he assumed I was a member of the summit. All right, so where are you taking us in the next episode? Uh, so I'll return back to my talk about relationships. I'm going to start to dive into marriage. There's a lot that we uh, assume about marriage, uh, and I'm going to specifically talk about marriage as a covenant. What does that mean? And uh, we will then progress through that for a couple more times until I wrap up my uh, relationship kind of story arc, I guess. And because you said the keyword covenant, that means we've come to the end of our time together. Um, I do, before we go, want to say the Batman analogy is not a Colin Schultz original. I have to give credit where credit's due. Uh, Mr. Paul Assay, writing the book God on the Streets of Gotham, drew that analogy out, and um, I've I've found it to be very helpful. Um, But we are grateful that you have joined us for this episode, and we will see you next time. All right. See ya. See ya.